The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On with Devin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. We head to the White House to speak with Heather Boucher, member of President Joe Biden's Council of Economic Advisors, Infrastructure, the Economy, and Equal Payday, plus Congressman Andy Levin, all-star, jam-packed hour. What a busy week in Washington. Tomorrow, jam-packed day, big tech returns, albeit somewhat virtually, to Capitol Hill. The big tech CEOs, we're going to have Complete coverage of that and President Biden's press conference also set for tomorrow. He's going to face a lot of questions on the economy as well as China. So a busy day uh, as we head into the second half of this week. But let's talk about the news today. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testified on Capitol Hill for a second day before the Senate Banking Committee. Take a listen to the sound on this from Secretary Yellen, who said that banks should have some ability to buy back shares now. I was struck by this. Here she is. The financial institutions look healthier now, and I believe they should have some ability to, um, you know, abiding by the rules to return, make returns to shareholders. The part of that that I was struck by, that the financial institutions, the banks, are looking healthy. They're looking healthy as we uh, continue to climb on out of this pandemic era and the pandemic economy. Joining us on the telephone line, live from the White House, Heather Boucher. She is a member of President Joe Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. I want to talk to you about Equal Pay Day, but first just some broader analysis, Heather, from your perspective about the economy and the pace of the recovery and where things stand. Uh, Obviously, in my neck of the woods, we're all focused on Powell and and Yellen's testimony uh, before the Hill. Well, these are great questions. You know, the um, the fact is, is that because the American Rescue Plan is out there putting money in people's pockets and really importantly, providing businesses and families and state and local governments with the resources they need to contain the pandemic, this makes me you know, optimistic that, you know, to the extent that we can contain this pandemic, we can get the economy back on track, get people back to work, get schools reopened so that parents can get to work and childcare centers 
containers reopened, um, you know, and just make sure that we're, we're bringing this economy back. So, um, I mean, that's where I think we, we are right now. You know, I, I was struck by this, and obviously today is Equal Pay Day, but I was struck by this just in having covered uh, Secretary Yellen prior to her becoming Treasure, Treasury Secretary from her time at the Central Bank, and then, of course, uh, to hear Fed Chairman Powell's testimony this week as well. When they're talking about inflation, they're noting the inequality gap. They're noting the unemployment differences uh, between minority communities, especially amongst African-Americans, and the toll that the pandemic has taken on women in the workforce as well. Uh, Obviously, for uh, Fed Chairman Powell to be addressing this, as well as Secretary Yellen, that is a significant change, not just just in terms of the past decade, in terms of uh, policy. But from your perspective, what is your team doing to address some of those inequities that we've seen in the pandemic uh, recovery? Well, we're thinking about them every day. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's important to acknowledge that you know, we've seen 40 years now, you know, decades of this rising economic inequality. And we're starting as economists to really grapple with what that means. And I think that's what you hear in um, you know, Chairman Powell's comments and um, Secretary Yellen's comments about how the economy is faring and what we need to watch. Right? It used to be the case that when you saw you know, GDP go up, you could know, oh, well, everybody across America America was probably experiencing, you know, income gains of about the same. But we've known in recent decades that, you know, aggregate growth has become really disconnected from the average person's experience. And so you have to think about, well, what does that mean for our measures of success? And, you know, we need to make sure that we are bringing everybody along. So we need to take a closer look at what's happening with the black unemployment rate. We need to make sure, especially here on Equal Pay Day, that we're taking a look at what that gender wage gap is and who's benefiting and who isn't because the ultimate measure of success of the economy is how well it's working for, you know, people all across these United States. It's not just these aggregate abstract figures. It's really, you know, is it creating that strong, stable, broad-based middle class? Um, Is it creating those good jobs? And so it, um, you know, these are the metrics that we are looking at every day um, here in the Biden administration. So the Biden administration, as you know, as you're a part of, has signaled plans to strengthen gender equity at its time in which women in the U.S. are disproportionately exiting the workforce compared with men during the COVID-19 pandemic. And they are paid, get this folks, 82 cents on the dollar compared with men and that the gaps are even larger for women of color. Okay, let's talk policy, Heather. What are some solutions that you that you and, and the team are looking at uh, to address this? And, and are, are, are there any of them bipartisan? <laughs> well, I will say, you know, a lot of the things that we need to do to start to addressing the gender gap, um, some of the pieces of that, the foundations of that, were in the American Rescue Plan. And while that didn't get bipartisan votes, you know, up on Capitol Hill, it did get bipartisan support out there among the American people. So you saw it being supported by people across the political spectrum because it, it dealt with those real issues, those real challenges. So let me give you a couple of examples. We know that a big part of the gender pay gap is unexplained. In fact, economists estimate that about 38% of the gap between men and women's pay, we just can't explain using the kinds of jobs um, that men and women are in, or race, or gender, even educational attainment, because, you know, women now are more likely to graduate college than men, which should close the gender pay gap, and and has, but not Candidly, that doesn't surprise me. Go ahead. (laughs) Exactly. So, but but if it's unexplained, you know, a big part of what that is, is, you know, um, what's 
happening inside workplaces, the norms about who gets paid time off to care, um, who doesn't, whether or not workers get paid time off when they, they have a sick child or a new child enter the family. Um, and, and, you know, if the child care center is closed, which parent um, quits their job or cuts back their hours to care for the kids or what happens when schools are closed? So there's all of these different ways that we see um, the different responsibilities that women still tend to take on for care affecting their ability to um, fully participate in the workforce and, you know, the ways that that feeds through, you know, the, the ways that employers do or do not discriminate against women um, relative to men or caregivers more generally. So it's worth thinking about solutions, things like making sure that we are giving childcare centers the resources they need to safely reopen and mm. pay their workers. That's something that is important for the gender wage gap because, you know, those childcare workers, some of the least paid workers in our economy, especially relative to the skills that they bring to the job. So if we pay them well, that's part of closing that gap. They're disproportionately women, disproportionately women of color. And then that care being there means that other parents can get to work and that helps close the gap in other ways. Heather Boucher is with us from the White House. Prior to that, she ran the Washington Center for Equality. And she, uh, in 2016, she served as the chief economist for now former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential uh, campaign. I got two more questions for you. First and foremost is talk to me about the private sector. What should the private sector be doing to be more inclusive? Because candidly, Congress sometimes from their perspective takes a long time. So what should what can businesses be doing right now to to close some of these uh, inequities, uh, both in the gender gap as well as uh, uh, to, to be more inclusive? It's a great question. You know, I, I founded and ran a small business, essentially, and these yep. were issues I thought about every day, you know, and, I, and it's hard. But, you know, here's some things you can do. You know, thinking about making sure that um, hiring processes are unbiased. There's actually this really great research, some of it done by um, the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Cecilia Rouse, yep. um, showing that how we interview job candidates, um, you know, our perceptions of them as men or women, um, people of color, that that can affect how we view their skills. So as you're thinking about, um, you know, doing uh, application processes or evaluating people for promotions, putting together processes that help eliminate that bias, you know, maybe have, um, you know, blind applications. You don't know the race or gender of the applicants when you do the first screen. And then maybe you'll find that, wow, your, your pool is more diverse, you know, and focusing on those diverse pools. That's so, so important. Another thing you can do is um, you know there's a lot of work showing that uh, women start off with a pay gap and then it grows over time and some of that is because at each job she's asked what did you make at the last job and um, so those those um, those those gaps magnify well you can fix that by not asking people what they made at the last job pay the people at your firm what they should be paid based on based on the job that they're doing not based on whether or not they were paid a, a good or a bad salary at their prior job so we call that um, you know not asking about um, salary history. So these are just some of the things that private that employers can do to make sure that they are not um, creating inequities in their own workplaces. Fun fact and about Kevin. Offer, go ahead. And, and they could offer paid leave. So Look, I've got three thing. older sisters. All of them played Division One soccer. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. <laughs> what was Megan Rapinoe like today? Did you meet her? I feel like I you probably already met her. I didn't get to meet her. I was in another meeting uh, with the vice president, but oh, uh, she's a hero. And I was so excited <laughs> that they are talking about pay equity. I mean, women's sports, that is such a place where you see these grave inequities. And it's not fair and it's not right.
Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Maybe, you know what? Tell Megan Rapinoe or Vice President Kamala Harris to come on the show. I talk about this with them. <laughs> All right, Heather Boucher? I appreciate the time. Thanks for so much for your time. That's Heather Boucher. She's a member of President Joe Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, and she's talking about equal pay day, economics and infrastructure. Look, I got to be candid. I thought it was interesting what she said about what the private sector should be doing. Uh, because let's be candid. You know, we're talking about infrastructure. We're talking about tax policies and whatnot. But those are still at least months and months away. So interesting to hear how the, the conversation out of Washington, even though people roll their eyes at it, does, in fact, impact the private sector in different reverberations. Coming up next, Bloomberg Policy All-Star Panel. Jeannie Shanzano joins me with Congressman Andy Levin. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied none other than by Jeannie Shanzano, Professor Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics Policy Contributor. Uh, Jeannie, we're, we're waiting for Congressman Andy Levin, but just your, your uh, reaction from the White House. And we just heard from Heather Boucher, a member of the Council of Economic Ad- Advisors. I mean, it was so fascinating to hear her on Equal Pay Day. I didn't realize when she talked to you about the 38% gap that cannot be explained, um, which, and then you followed up with this question that's critically important about what's happening inside these organizations and what the private sector can do. And she talked about things like how we interview view job candidates, and it reminded me about those blind auditions they do at orchestras to help eliminate gender bias. So, you know, there's a lot there, Hmm. I think, that we need to think about. But that 38% unexplained is, I think, where we need, at least in my field, to do more research to understand what is going on there. And to her point, what can be done to address these situations? Yeah, I I think it's interesting, especially, you know, sitting here on a rainy day in Washington, D.C., Another rainy day, like that famous painting that is, I believe, in the Oval Office. Uh, but it, it, it's it's fascinating to hear the criticism, which which we hear frequently from the private sector, that oh, Washington D.C. never does anything, or you know, they're just all talk and, and a lot of political theater. But but the the parameters of of the debate, whether it's on um, gender pay issues or uh, or how to address inequality, or even a broader sense from from geopolitics perspective, the way that those debates are framed really does impact uh, the, the C-suite level and the, the policies in the boardroom. Would you agree? It does. And I think one of the things that I've done some work in this area, and one of the things that we always have to make the case uh, is that it not only is makes sense from a societal perspective to have equal pay and eliminate gender bias, it is good business sense. And that's something I think increasingly organizations are recognizing that for their bottom line, if nothing else, this makes good sense. And then next step, 
once you prioritize that, how do you get there? And that's that's not easy to do. Well, is it from your research, Professor Zeno? Is it is it is it, is it more complicated than just saying um, someone isn't paying someone? Or what are the factors that contribute to to the beyond? What does the research suggest? Let me word this artfully. Uh, what are, what are the what does the research suggest in terms of why uh, women are not often paid more? Is it is it what are some what does the research show? Well, there is obviously a history there, and so you know there is a structural component to this. So there's that. There's also psychological and sociological aspects. Just as an example, um, you know we know that women leaving college at a, graduating at a higher rate with higher grades, doing better in college. Yet, when they get into the workforce, for whatever reason, they aren't as willing for other reasons to stand up and put themselves on the front lines in the same way as some men are. And so there seems to be this gap there that we need to figure out how to close. And I think a lot of it is structural. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. And that research is just so incredibly important. The data, of course, to inform the policies. Joining us now on the telephone line, Congressman Andy Levin. He is a Democrat from Michigan's 9th Congressional District. He is a member of the Committee on Education and Labor and on the Committee on Foreign Relations. Congressman, great to have you back. Let me play for you a soundbite from Fed Chairman Jay Powell. He testified on the Hill today, not before your committee, uh, but he talked about inflation pressures, which he believes are going to be temporary. Take a listen to what he had to say, and then I want to get your reaction to it. Here he is. In the near term, we do expect, as many forecasters do, that there will be some upward pressure on prices, and also there'll be a technical thing, a base effects as the very low readings from April, April and March of last year drop out of the 12-year calculation. Uh, we don't expect that those uh, that, that upward pressure will produce uh, substantially higher prices or that the effects will be persistent. We expect that they'll be transitory or temporary. Congressman inflation, are the union workers, are they worried about it? These are your people. Are they are they worried about inflation? No, I Kevin, I don't think inflation is at the center of people's mind right now. I mean, we're in the middle of a of a the biggest public health crisis in 100 years. We've got still very high unemployment. We've got a lot of people out of the workforce altogether who really want to work. You know, we've got a, a, a over well over a million jobs lost in the public sector. So we're, we've got to get everybody back to work. And I don't think inflation is, um, you know, a, a real center, central concern. I think the Fed chairman is right in his assessment. You know, you're on the subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and the nonproliferation. You're the vice chairman of that, as well as the subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, Civilian concert, Security, Migration, and International Economic Policy. I want to talk to you about domestic manufacturing. I was struck by the $20 billion uh, that Intel invested in the United States to help shore up some of the supply chains for the semiconductor sh- chip shortage uh, that hopefully will create some some American jobs and diversify the supply chain. I wanted to get your reaction to that, but also to, 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 to see what we could glean from you about just how important it is to diversify from China, but in a way to also provide jobs here and, and, and link that diversification to manufacturing jobs. Kevin, it's hugely, hugely important. At long last, we need to have an industrial policy in this country. You know, people have have relied on tired, 
stereotypes and, you know, things like, oh, well, you know, we can't make things here because people make too much money or, you know, they're too highly unionized. Well, I mean, look at Germany, much more highly unionized than the United States, uh, much higher labor costs than the United States. And Germany literally has gets twice as much of its GDP from manufacturing as the U.S. does. Not 10% more or 50% more, twice as much. Wow. We we've seen the national security requirements to for because of PPE and vaccine supplies for COVID. We've seen the the our, the inability of our car companies to finish making cars because we they don't, we don't have the chips they need. I mean, we've got to rebuild manufacturing in this country and then look at climate change. Nobody's even talking about this, but we 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 really can't be shipping things around the world so much that could be made all over the place. And that's a way not only to rebuild manufacturing here, but to help, say, our poorer neighbors in the Western Hemisphere get in the game some. Talk about a response to Belt and Road that, you know, of China. What if the U.S. led a massive climate change initiative in the Western Hemisphere where we said, okay, we've got to do a huge amount more of offshore wind, onshore wind, solar, solar thermal, geothermal, battery storage. That's a lot of manufacturing. Let's make a lot of it here and, and you know, sell it or on, on subsidized terms to our neighbors and then help them begin to manufacture stuff for the, their own uh, needs. And, you know, I think we need a real renaissance of manufacturing. It's great jobs. It's a lot of union jobs. The, the know-how goes where the manufacturing is. Congressman, so if we stop you rep- making stuff here, you know, we're not going to have the, 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 the engineering and research either. Congressman, you represent uh, Detroit's northern and northeastern suburbs, the 9th Congressional District of Michigan. I mean, you mentioned uh, a resurgence of, of manufacturing as well as uh, trying to have some some effect on changing the, the global policies regarding uh, climate change. But let me let me press you on this. Solar panels. I mean, this is right up your right up your alley. Solar panels, polysilicon. I mean, half of the global supply of polysilicon comes from the Xinjiang province of China. I mean, and we all know about the human rights abuses. President Biden the other week uh, joining the UK, EU, issuing some important, important sanctions against some individuals for their cooperation with the Communist Party of China in order to, to, to do those horrific human rights abuses against the Uyghur Muslim minorities. But how crucial is it that those rare earth and minerals and metals that we that, you know, maybe we diversify if we can't do it here in the United States uh, to other parts of the world with our allies? It's, it's, it's absolutely crucial. You know, the, President Biden has brought a, a measure of sanity back to our foreign policy. We need to work. China is a huge uh, problem in many different ways. Intellectual property theft, uh, currency manipulation, unfair trade in other ways. But we can't. Human rights abuses. Human, well, human rights abuses massively, not only in Xinjiang, which is probably the worst, but Tibet, Hong Kong, and on and on. So we need to uh, t- tackle China. We need to get all our allies together and confront China as a group to say, well, you know, we'll trade with you, but you got to trade on fair terms. We're not going to shut up when you violate people's human rights, when you have people working in forced labor camps. And we need to shine light on any American and other Western companies that make goods with, you know, that are 
made with parts or, or materials that come from Xinjiang. So we absolutely need to diversify and we need to stand up for human rights around the world. And, and I think Joe Biden's off to a really good start uh, in that regard. Representative Levin, it's Jeannie Shanzano. It's good to talk to you. Um, hey, Jeannie. It's, I hope you're doing well. I, um, I'm listening to this conversation about a resurgence and a renaissance of manufacturing. And one of the things that um, I've been able to work on a little bit is the pro- promises on both the right and the left going back several election cycles to bring jobs back to the United States. And yet what that conversation seems to miss is the fact that many of these jobs haven't gone abroad. They've gone to AI. So I'm wondering what Congress can do and what you can do, and I know this impacts your district a lot, in terms of jobs that have gone to artificial intelligence and how we can prepare the workforce for that transition, which is, you know, big and promises to get bigger. Absolutely. Well, and just technological change of all kinds. You know, in the night, I got to get my hands on the specific issue, but sometime in the 1950s, the cover of Time magazine had Flint, Michigan on it. And I think GM employed 80 or 100,000 people in Flint alone building cars, and it was the highest median income city in America. Today, GM employs 49,000 people in the entire United States. Wow. So That's a so right. Great. Yeah, you're so right about, you know, that the, the, the nature of work is changing. What we have to do is two things. Number one, we have to give workers the freedom to form unions and have a seat at the table so they can sit with the, their executives of their company, plan together, and not feel like they are on the chopping block. Secondly, we've got to have a much more robust workforce education system so that people can train and retrain throughout their careers as the technology changes. And those, both of those things are quite possible. Again, if you look at some of our European friends slash competitors, you know, they uh, put a lot more money into their human capital so that they're not, you know, workers in Sweden where, the, where 70% of people have unions, aren't really afraid of technological change. They want their company to be the most efficient and cutting edge it can be so they can thrive over time, but they're not worried about their jobs because they have a seat at the table. So I think we can have a higher road approach and have the U.S. be much more competitive um, uh, you know, on, on the global scene, but also lead in a way. Uh, much better. And, you know, I, I think we react to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative defensively and reactively. It's like, wait a minute, we're the United States. Exactly. We have, we're the center of innovation and creativity. Let's, let's, t- let's leverage all that to be, a, you know, a great partner to the smaller com- countries and, you know, help them thrive and if we do, we'll blow the Chinese, you know, efforts out of the water, which involve a lot of pressure on countries and a lot of uh, loans that they have to pay mm-hmm. back. So I think we could do a lot. To, it comes down to, to trust. Our economy. It comes yeah. down to trust. And people don't, I mean, people don't trust the Communist Party of China. Look, Congressman Andy Levin's with us. He's a Democrat from Michigan. I want to keep it domestic just to, to, to piggyback off of what Jeannie Shanzano, our Bloomberg Politics contributor, was just uh, alluding to and, and that, that you had just mentioned. You know, they, it used to be all politics, all politics is, is personal. Well, now all politics is plastic and all policy is personal. And so when we're having a conversation about reworking, 
the energy sector, not just in the United States, but globally. Candidly, I hear this from folks back home, which is, where's the money for retraining? If you're going to have, whether it's a stimulus package or past executive orders uh, under, the, under the notion of uh, addressing climate change, well, what are you going to do with refinery workers? And so you alluded to, to what Switzerland does, what Germany does. But, Congressman, where is the money to retrain employees, not just when they're fresh out of college, not just with um, uh, 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 schools and teenagers and, uh, and going into vocational training programs, but at 40 years old, in their 50s, and yes, even in their 60s, so that they can continue to have economic income, good-paying, quality jobs? Now you're really getting into my train, Kevin. <laughs> so this, first of all, this this has got to become a thing to talk about on Bloomberg. What, what a here what a I am. Delco has arrived. <laughs> yeah, what a what a boilermaker, a pipe fitter, or a laborer says when you tell them to go. You know, you're not going to work in the fossil fuel industry anymore. You go put up solar panels. They say blank blank you. Yeah, those aren't jobs. I know like they do. Jobs. And well, the so the first thing that has to happen, I'm going to hit on this over and over again, is we've got to pass the PRO Act and restore the freedom to form unions and bargain collectively in this country so that those, so that all those new industry jobs can be good middle-class jobs, just like the auto and rubber and steel industries, which were horrible, low-paying, dangerous jobs 100 years ago, were turned into the aristocracy of the middle class because the workers organized and you know i've just been down in bessemer alabama at the amazon facility you know that's one whole thing but on your other point how do i know it can be done because i already did it you know i ran the michigan workforce system for the whole 49 months when michigan 49 straight months we had the highest unemployment rate of any state and i we created a program called called no worker left behind it was essentially a free college program. Every worker, underemployed or underemployed worker, could get up to two years of, of free tuition, up to $10,000 worth at any Michigan community college or university or approved training program to as long as they studied for the skills, certificates, or degrees needed for an in-demand job in Michigan. And people said, oh, Mich- they're, like you said, they're 30, they're 40. We work with our hands in Michigan. They don't want to go to school. They don't want to be next to some kid who's with tattoos and, you know, whatever their stereotype is, young people. You know what? (laughs) Kevin, we got 83 counties in Michigan. We had a waiting list for No Worker Left Behind in 83 counties, and we put 162,000 Michigan workers back to school. The vast majority of them got jobs in, you know, healthcare, nanotechnology, robotics, other advanced manufacturing areas, IT. So we, we can do it, but you're right. We haven't invested adequately. Watch what Joe, watch what Joe Biden proposes. And I was just at the White House yesterday meeting with um, his chief of staff and his other top lieutenants. The degree to which they want to partner with us is still kind of amazing to me. And, um, you know, they are going – workforce is going to be a central part of what they propose in the coming weeks. Yeah, I still I still say, I mean, and this is where I'm going to be geographically biased given where I grew up. People want to work. They don't want to they don't want to not have a job. People want to work. It's a uniquely American spirit uh notion and 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 I and you know, and encouraging people to want to work, to want to get back to the office, to want to 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 create 
to to elevate to 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 really get on there uh, and contribute to make a contribution to to society. That's American. That's uniquely American. Congressman Andy Levin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for stopping by and uh, talking about policy issues. All policy is personal. That's Congressman Andy Levin. He's a Democrat from Michigan. Jeannie Shanzano, I thought that was you know really interesting to hear. You know, he was just at the White House yesterday, and to hear uh, what him and Ron Klain are talking about. I love that. I love him with the work he's done. The no worker left behind. I I know he had to go. I wanted yeah. to ask him. He seems confident that's included in the Build Back Better. Can that actually pass? And what components does he see there? Because this issue of retraining and making sure that we invest in human capital is critical for the United States. I don't. Do Do you get the sense when you talk to your students and when you when you talk to lawmakers that it's almost like they're typecast and and they're, they're removed from. I don't want to say reality, but from other people's reality of what it's actually like out there right now uh, to be mid-career and to, to to be suffering through unemployment at a very uncertain time. Do you follow me? I, I, I do follow you. And I know people who are, and it is devastating in every way. And I think it's yeah. very tough, I'll tell you, for students my uh, that I work with at the college level to understand that. Because, you know, at that age, your whole future is ahead of you. You can't imagine something like that happening. You get a job, you feel like you're there. I was just telling them yesterday, when you get a job, have an exit strategy because it may not be forever, which is horrible advice. But, you know, it's really good advice, actually, (laughs) you know, but I think it's hard for young people. But it's devastating, as we know, for people mid 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 level to, you know, or middle age to to suffer that and not to have the support of their community. So the programs that he was describing are so important. it's, It's dizzying right now with so much going on over the past year in the news flow. Uh, I feel that one thing that the the media can improve upon is to really uh, do a better job at telling the story of unemployment, especially for mid-career Americans and veterans, for that matter, and everyone. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent uh, for Bloomberg TV and Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, accompanied none other by Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics Policy All-Star. I got to say, Jeannie, I'm still reeling from that reeling, pun intended, Bloomberg, uh, from that uh, blockbuster interview that we did yesterday with the manager from Blockbuster in Bend, Oregon. I I really enjoyed that. She is amazing. I'm Sandy. recommending that to everybody. You threw me off my game yesterday, Kevin, because I've watched I it and I couldn't <laughs> work. I just wanted to watch it all day, which I did. Well, then last <laughs> night I started the Varsity Blues documentary and I'm halfway through that. I don't know if you've seen that. No, about... I, I you put me to shame. I'm so behind. No, <laughs> I I, I've been like going down a documentary wormhole and now it's all of the, the college... Uh, tuition or what you know remember Lori Lachlan yeah yeah that I have to see as well I'm there's so many I have to see so but I the the blockbuster one it's a really important story um I and very nostalgic too I worked there so I think it I I love what what's your what's your blockbuster memory it is a really important story about technology and capitalism which you know is a wave and sometimes doesn't reach every crevice of our country uh, at 
at, on the same timetable. But I just thought it was really inspiring with what Sandy's message was that even though technology and streaming and uh, internet access might have passed over for now, just hasn't reached there yet to Bend, Oregon, that that entrepreneur spirit was still there and she was fighting you know, to, to keep her small business open. I love that. I love, love, love that. And she has done that beautifully. And, and she it's an inspiring story, really, because the business seems to be doing better than anybody yeah. could have expected. You know, I remember back when I started out as a journalist, like 10 years ago, um, I went to Winslow, Arizona on Route 66. And I was a fellow at the Arizona Republic. And they this town was really suffering because of what had happened uh, from uh, just the, the highway and just, again, a similar situation where the cities were booming and the small town was left behind. And the town rallied together because of the lyric standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona by the, the legendary Eagles. by the Eagles. And I called up. I called them up and I said I wanted to do a story on it. And I, I drove up from Phoenix all the way up to middle. Well, it's the middle of somewhere, not the middle of nowhere, the middle of somewhere, uh, Winslow, Arizona. And. I was so moved. I will never forget that story for the rest of my life. Standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona, and they boomed. And now it's like a selfie station, for lack of a better word. And everyone goes and passes through, and they have to stop there to go to the, the famous corner on Route 66 and take their picture. So that, Such a fine sight to see, Kevin. It is. <laughs> such a good song, too. Take such it easy. Who needs song. to hear it today? And take Matt, it Matt easy. Matt Shirley just says it was written by Jackson Brown, and that just blew my mind because I love him, too. So, Well, fun fact, they also performed in Winslow, Arizona. Okay, and maybe, the, maybe that's why he threw it. We're so off topic. It's Christine so Barada, our executive <laughs> producer, is like, bring it back to geopolitics. <laughs> we, we can with Lester Munson. Lester! He is uh, principal at government relations firm BGR Group and, of course, a former a senior policy advisor to um, now former Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Bob Corker. Lester, how are you? Kevin, doing great. Thanks for uh, having me. All right, let's talk geopolitics because we do have a, a soundbite from Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who says that the U.S. will not force us or them choice with China. This is interesting because this whole thread for the show has been how do you get allies and other countries around the world to, to come back to the United States. So the Biden administration will not demand that its allies make an us or them choice between the U.S. and China, according to Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Tony Blinken. Uh, and he made this speech at the NATO headquarters in Brussels. Uh, and he offered the most cognate explanation yet for efforts to restore alliances after four years of the previous administration. Take a listen to the sound on this from Secretary of State Tony Blinken. The United States won't force our allies into a us or them choice with China. We'll rely on innovation, not ultimatums. So he's essentially saying we're going to out-innovate and that will attract our allies. Is he right? Is he wrong? Is he naive? Is he bullish? What do you think? Well, well Kevin, he's, he's a diplomat and he's, and he's <laughs> trying to be diplomatic. So good for him. Uh, I think the reality is that with a lot of these key issues, it is us or them and uh, the Trump administration, uh, for, its, for all of its many faults, uh, did recognize that at a certain point, particularly with telecommunications technology, countries need to choose not the Chinese model. They need to come west. They need to adopt our standards, our, uh, our open system, our non-government controlled companies. 
and they, they have to say no to Huawei and ZTE and the Chinese option. So while, while I totally understand what Secretary Blinken is saying, he's being a good diplomat and he's trying to put on a very happy face, the reality is, in a lot of these questions, it is us or them. And I hope that behind the scenes, the administration knows that and they're pushing that tough decision. The, the Trump administration took some shots, but they actually ended up with some good results in key places. They got the British off of their willingness to adopt Huawei. Uh, and they got them in the right spot. The, the Biden administration has to keep doing that good work while putting a you know a nicer face on it. Lester, it's Jeannie Shanzano. It's so good to talk to you. Um, I wanted to ask you what you made of the uh, tr- the Biden administration prior to meeting with China, starting with South Korea, Japan, and India, and what kind of sort of sign that sent to the Chinese. I thought I thought it was very smart. Uh, I, I applaud them for doing that. It's the uh, it, it would have been a huge faux pas to do it otherwise. Uh, and I think in part, you know, when when Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan got to Anchorage, Alaska, and met with Yang Jichur and the other Chinese officials, the reason the Chinese officials were were you know kind of diplomatically hostile. They weren't really hostile, but they were they were a little nasty. Uh, is for exactly that reason, because the U.S., uh, through their the, the symbolism of their travel, reminded people that it's Japan, it's Korea, it's India, Australia that are our key allies in the Asia-Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific. And that and that is not the model that China wants the world to see. But it's it's the model that that has evolved. I, I mean, and, and from your perspective, just how crucial does the Xinjiang province play in, in the next year and a half, especially with the Olympics coming up? I mean, you and I have both talked about this on and offline about how now there's an increase in lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who are deeply skeptical about whether or not Beijing ought to have the Olympics uh, just simply because of, of the the human rights abuses. Now you've got President Biden issuing those executive orders uh, in, in tangent with the EU and the UK. Is this a is this a broader narrative that we're seeing emerge here? You know, uh, Kevin, it's a great question. Uh, I I think this is just my personal idiosyncratic view. I think the U.S. and everyone else should go to the Olympics and highlight the Xinjiang issue. You know, wow. There was, there was no better shot at the This is interesting team. to me. Go ahead. Yeah. My, this is my idiosyncratic view. There was no better shot at, um, at the Nazi regime in Berlin in 1936 when Jesse Owens is winning gold medal after gold medal. You know, it just put the lie to the myth of the, the Aryan race oh. and all that nonsense. There, what, what a great opportunity for our diverse we have the most diverse group of athletes in the world to send them to China and to show them how you treat each other, that we treat each other with respect openly. Honestly, sometimes we have disagreements, but we work them out. We don't repress one group. You know, let's let's go there and be the example and really show up the hosts. We did that in 1936. I don't see why we can't do it next year. Is it possible, though? I mean, in this climate, in this fragmented climate. Think of think of the American athletes in, in Mexico City, you know, raising their fists on the stand. Uh, you know, it, it just takes a moment. It just takes a photograph. It just takes, you know, a brave person in the right spot at the right time to send the message that the rest of the world will understand. I And for, and for another, you know, I think the athletes shouldn't have to suffer uh, for, for politics. Let's let them go compete. Let's show how good we are. Let's show how magnanimous we are. Uh, and, and let's give a let's give a ray of hope to to Xinjiang province. I'm, I've got I hold no candle for the Chinese government, 
I don't want to let them reap the benefits of this, but uh, I think we can use this against them. It's about time we flip the script. All right. Lester Munson, principal of government relations for MBGR Group, former senior advisor to the former Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Chairman Bob Corker. March is Women's History Month, and Bloomberg Radio is looking back at some of those who have played a vital role in American history. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Vernita Young. On this day in women's history in 1996, Shannon Lucid becomes the first female U.S. astronaut to live aboard a space station. She entered the Russian space station Mir from the U.S. space shuttle Atlantis. And while on board the Mir, Lucid helped complete several physical science and life science experiments. She returned to Earth on September 26th of that year. After completing her fifth mission, Lucid had logged more than 223 days in space. She received her Bachelor of science degree in chemistry from the University of Oklahoma. Then she earned a master's of science and doctor of philosophy in biochemistry. That's today in women's history. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. Is it raining in New York, Jeannie? It is all day and I have eagles on my brain now. So all night I'll be singing Take It Easy. Good. That's Take It Easy, everybody. It's (laughs) such a great song. Standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. I want to go to Arizona. We should get (laughs) Rick. I wonder if Rick knows any places in Arizona. We'll have to ask him. I'm Kevin Cerilli. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.